We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 that Charles read to us here. And let me give you a little statement, a summary statement to uh, explain this text to you. Uh, we're we're going to call this text, I'm going to put a title on it, it's called Perpetual Easter. And what the thought means is, is that the resurrection of Jesus is not in the Bible seen merely as an event, merely in time and space. That the event of Christ's resurrection from the dead, the newness of life when he rose, wasn't just an event. The resurrection set in motion ripples that have continued through our day and will continue until Revelation 21.1 when he makes new heavens and new earth. Right now, he is making men that are new creations. He rose from the dead and it spread to us. And so Easter is a perpetual idea. And that is, I think, uh, that which determines the maturity of a believer to his extent of that understanding. It's not just that he rose from the dead, but it's not just that he rose from the dead so that I could be saved, but he gives a newness of perspective to God, yourself, to others, your life, eternity, to, to what history holds someday. And so with that in mind, you stay with me here and we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 13. The Apostle Paul explains in verse 13 his radical devotion to Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 13 that people have to make a decision on Paul. You're either going to hate him and regard him as insane or you're going to love him and you uh, name your kids after him. He's kind of like Christ, that there is no middle ground on him. Christ is a liar, Christ is a lunatic, or Christ is the Lord. So you fall down and say, my Lord and my God, or you regard him as a pest. And so in verse 13, Paul says, if we, the apostles, if we are of sound mind, I'm sorry, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. The term beside ourselves means literally out of our minds, that I'm crazy. And Paul says, if people regard us as crazy, it is because of God. You remember where Festus in the book of Acts was listening to Paul give his testimony, and he interrupted him, and he said, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. You're crazy. At Mars Hill in Acts 17, they said, uh, let's see what this idle babbler has to say. Um, who else said something crazy? Oh, yeah, uh, Tertullus, the lawyer. He said, this man is a real pest and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, that our country needs to get rid of him. And so whenever you listen to Paul talking about a God that was outside of you, that had created everything, that incarnated his son into history to be an atonement whereby men could be saved and he would now indwell them as his church and he was going to return someday and judge all that had refused him. If that's not true, that's crazy. And so they said, Paul said, if we are seen as lunatics, it is because of our devotion to God. And then he said, but if we are of sound mind, 
it is for you. That word sound is our English word hygiene. A mind that is healthy. Some regarded Paul as a mind that was insane. Some regarded him as being the healthiest of all thought. That this man shows us who God is, what the, how we came to an alienation from God, how we can be healed, how we can be reconciled back to the normalcy of what a human being should be. We can be better husbands, better wives, better kids, better fathers, better citizens, better everything. We can be trustworthy. We can have a work ethic. We have hope for eternal life. He puts our minds at rest. We're like the garrison demoniac. We're seated, clothed in our right minds at the feet of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, and so some people look at Christ or the Apostle Paul as being the worst thing that ever happened to civilization. Some people see him as we want to name our kids, Paul, because of the the marvel that this man brought us. And so Paul says, I have a radical devotion. Y'all know what the word radical means? It's a takeoff on the word radix that means a root. You ever eat a radish? I hope not. It means a root, okay? Whenever you're going to get the square root of a number, there's a sign. Anybody remember? I'm talking to the wrong people right here. Yeah, whenever you had your algebra and you're going to find the square root, what's that sign called? Not pi. It's called a radical. <laughs> Pi is when you divide the something into whatever. Okay. It's a radical. It's a square root. And so when we talk about a person being radical, what's that mean? It means that he is seized at the core of his being. Anybody remember 60s radicals? They were going to burn down our culture. They were crazy. Antifa are radicals. Timothy Leary was a radical. Paul is a radical. He, the idea that there is a God who became a man, that became a criminal, that became a dead man, that became a living man, and that can save men, return, and judge the universe, that's radical right there. And so Paul says, I have a radical devotion to Jesus Christ. You got to do to me like you do to Christ. You got to hate me or you got to love me. There's no middle ground. Well, in verse 14 and 15, he's going to explain why he has this radical devotion. He says, for the love of Christ controls me. Why does he have this devotion? Because of the love of Christ. That's not talking about my love for Christ, love of Christ, but his love for me. Something he did for me has literally, the word there in 14, controls. Some of you have a Bible that says constrains. It's the Greek word. How would you translate this? Take the word echo, E-C-H-O, that means in Greek to hold. That's why when you make an echo, the sound holds. Hello, 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 hello. It continues. The word soon echo means to hold with, and it means that you have grasped something. When you pick up your baby, there is soon echo. You hold onto him, her tightly, okay? That's the word here. The love that Christ has for me 
has controlled me. It has taken me. Buddy, you remember Bill McRae used to pastor? Yeah, and uh, he was one of my early heroes at Believer's Chapel in Dallas. And he talked, he was from Canada, and he talked about when he got converted. He said it was listening to George Bev Shea sing. Anybody? Billy Graham's singer and at the Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens back in the 50s. And he said, I heard him sing, and he said he sang something from a hymn. He sang... I saw one hanging on a tree in visions of my soul. He fixed his languid eyes on me as neat the cross I stood. Oh, can it be that on the tree the Savior died for me? My heart is filled. My soul is thrilled to think he died for me. And Bill McRae said, I heard George Bevshe sing that. And my life was never the same because I realized that you are to be unto God what Christ became. And that was a sacrifice. We are the sheep of God, Jim Elliott said. What do you raise sheep for? Sacrifice. And that's what we're meant to be is a living sacrifice. What's the problem with a living sacrifice? It keeps crawling off the altar. You got to stay up there. Okay. And so... Paul says, the love of Christ has gripped me, having, in verse 14, concluded something. Like Bill McRae, I came to a conclusion about this. You remember Christ comes to Thomas? I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger here and my hand here. Jesus appears. And he says, put your finger here. Put your hand here. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas never has to do it. He falls on his face and he says, my Lord and my God. That's all he had to do. When he saw this man died for me, he fell. That's what it's meant to do. Numbers of times I have done counseling with people that were kind of on the fence and suffering because they wanted good things to come from a compromising life. And I've said, you know, I can give you some counsel, but it's not going to help you because I'm putting logs on a dead fire. You've got to kindle afresh the gift of the, the salvation that's in you, and you've got to see what God did for you. And I said, your problem is you're not crying, that you know Jesus Christ is dying for you, and you're not living for him. And the problem is you're not crying. You should be crying. And I said, here's what you do. You go off into the, into the woods, and you just take John 19, and you read it as to what they did to him because of what you did. And then when you come out, you tell me if this does not move you. Y'all ever see Saving Private Ryan? Whenever uh, Matt Damon, who is Private Ryan, all of a sudden the screen morphs into an old Private Ryan. And you see him looking at the gravestone of that man, that Tom Hanks that came to get him. And he turns to his wife and he says with tears in his eyes, was I worth it? And she said, you were worth it. And so that's what it means. It means we look upon Christ and we say, was I worth his death? Have I responded to him? And so Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. Haven't concluded something. And there's four things that he says I have to come to grips with. That one died for all, therefore all died. So number one, I'm a dead man. Jesus died to the penalty of sin and to the power of sin. 
and he rose victorious. That now is true of us. Jesus didn't merely die for you, he died with you. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. You must take up your cross daily. You die if you're going to follow me. And so he says, I died to the penalty of sin. I'm going to heaven. But I also died to the power of sin. And that's what his next point is in verse 15. All died. He died for all so that they who live. Who is that? Those who live. I'll give you a hint. They're all in this room. They're Christians. He died for all, that is the universal nature of the atonement under the wrath of God for any and all. That those who live, that's talking about the elect of God that have partaken of this. That we live because of him. That he has freed our will. We don't have free will, but we have a freed will. We now have an option open to us of obedience that we never had before. When I think of my Christian life in my pagan days, there was never a time I struggled on whether to go to church. I had no desire to worship a God I didn't know. I didn't want to fellowship with the people that weren't mine. And so I did not struggle. Now, when I was a kid, I went to church because my mama beat me. And so I went to church out of self-preservation. Today, CPS would have taken me by the time I was six years old from her. But I felt no desire to go to church. I never read my Bible. That was a love letter to somebody else. I didn't pray unless I was going to play Arkansas, TCU. Didn't work. I didn't pray. I didn't hang out with God's people. I never sorrowed over my sin. I didn't like the effects of it, the weak, beggarly life that it left you with. I never sorrowed over my sin. I never confessed sin ever in my life, never repented is anybody with me on this? This was you too. All right. We may have led moral lives simply because of the logic of our superiors that told us to, and we understood it would be a safer life, but it wasn't because of the love of God. I never had a proper motive in my life for doing anything in those days. I trusted Christ and something happened. I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to pray. I still sinned, but it wasn't the same. I had not broken a rule. I'd offended a person. Uh, I wanted to assemble with the people of God, and I didn't know why. My mind was enlightened. My will was freed, and my soul was enlivened. I began to desire him. Anybody else? That was our testimony. You know why? Because I was born again. And so Paul says, these are not incidentally commands he's giving. These are facts. The love of Christ can, controls us. Having concluded something, that I died. And now I'm alive because of him. And the third thing is, in verse 15, that we no longer live for ourselves that when we trusted Christ and came up out of the water, we're new creations. How did we used to live? John said it like this. We live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
and the pride of life. Let me put that in perspective. We live to indulge ourselves. We live to increase our possessions and to impress the guys that saw me with this stuff. It was all us. We were like the poet said, the wretch concentered all in self dies unwept, unhonored, and unsung. We were wretches consumed within ourselves. Now we no longer live for ourselves. You want a good verse? Listen to this from Peter. The time past is sufficient for you to have carried out the lust of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, and in these they're surprised that you no longer run with them in the excess of dissipation, but they will give an account to him who will judge the living and the dead. And so Peter says, you've had enough time to live for yourselves. So we no longer live for ourselves. But then in verse 15, uh, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. That's not a command. This is what happens when you get saved. The cross was intentional. It was not merely an event to satisfy the wrath of God to open the door to men. It was intentional to die for all, to bring you in that they who live, you will no longer live the way you used to, but for him who died and rose for you. And because of the, how does Romans 12 verse 1 go? I urge you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. In light of what God did, we no longer live for ourselves. And so he says, we live for him. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And so after I got saved, things changed. I have never personally, I have personally never recovered from the grace of God. Can anybody? I've never recovered from that. That the infinite personal God would make a creation, purpose the fall, come and die and bring me back, not to the Garden of Eden, but to the paradise of God, to bestow his grace on me and allow me, me to violate the presence of God forever. That I, wouldn't you think that one beloved son would be enough for you? but he has been willing to take sons and daughters and bring us to himself and turn heaven from the occupation of the Trinity to an innumerable host of children that believe in him through the begotten son that has got mortal wounds on an immortal body. Do y'all know that? We all lose our, our uh, scars when we go to glory except for one person. He keeps them. Because the reason you ain't is because he is. Now, think about that. And if you can walk away from that, you need to check your pulse. And so Paul says, the cross was intentional 
to bring a people to himself. It goes like this. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Glorify God in your bodies. It goes like this. He came to purchase for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And now you're God's little children. And so that was the purpose of the atonement. Well, are you with me so far? Paul, why are you so radical? Answer, I've never gotten over the cross. That's why. If he could do this for me, then my life can be given for him. And so, in verse 16, he says, let me apply this. Therefore, the word therefore in Greek means therefore. I've been to seminary. (laughs) What that means is, is that in light of what I just told you, there is a logical reaction to this action. Therefore, from now on, from our conversion on, not only are we new, perpetual Easter, but something else is new. How I see people, we no longer recognize men according to the flesh. And how we see God, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this no longer. We have now a new perspective of God. We knew him according to the flesh. If you had asked Paul before his conversion, Paul, do you believe that Jesus existed? Oh, yes, I do. What do you think about him? Paul called himself in 1 Timothy uh, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Who was he blaspheming? Jesus. He cursed him. As a matter of fact, uh, Lewis Johnson, buddy, you remember him when I was at seminary? He was in systematic theology. He said, remember, he had a South Carolina drawl, kind of get your gullo. And he said, boys, remember that when Paul took off from Jerusalem to go to Damascus, the road to Damascus passes by Golgotha. And he said, I will assure you, as he headed off to Damascus, he said, I know you, Jesus of Nazareth, thou blasphemer, I will rid the world of your legend and your myth. And so he went to persecute his people. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You touch my people and you touch me. And so how does Paul regard him now? Like Peter, the blessed, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Christ. And so he said, I have changed in how I see Jesus And he says, I've changed in how I see his people. We recognize no man according to the flesh. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. These are now my brothers. That if I recognize Christ different, I'm going to have a new perspective of the body of Christ. That we no longer pigeonhole people. This is a white man. This is a black man. This is an Asian This is a smart guy. This is a not so smart guy. This is a what? This is a male guy. This is a female guy. This is a, and we start pigeonholing people. Has our world had a problem with bigotry, prejudice, and racism? Yeah, a minor problem, I'd say so. We've had a problem. You don't have it in the church. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeman, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is all and in all. 
I want to show you something interesting. I want you to look at it. Go to your right to Ephesians 2 and see here you have the Oz of all men. If we could just get this. The commies tried to get it. French Revolution tried to get it. Fraternity, liberty, unity. How do you get it? You kill everybody. Okay. And here is in Ephesians 2, the dream of all men. In verse uh, 11, remember therefore, Ephesians 2, 11, that formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. That means that you are not within the covenant community. The Jews were circumcised because they believed that through the male seed, the seed would come that would crush the serpent's head. In other words, Israel was meant to be a Christian nation. That's why they did circumcision. The sign of the Jew is not the Torah. The sign of the Jew is circumcision. They're Christian, ideally. And so, verse 12, remember that you were at that time, verse 11, formerly you were at that time. In your pagan days, you were separate from Christ and thus excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel had the commonwealth of the Bible. They had the knowledge of God from the temple. They had a priesthood to represent them. They had laws that could make them happy, holy, and prosperous. And you were separated from it. All you had was Plato. All you had was Timothy Leary. All you had was John Lennon. Is anybody with me? That's all you had. You didn't have Isaiah that you could go to. You were in the dark. And he says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Israel could look forward to the covenant of Abraham, where through him the nations would be blessed, and they would have land, and they would someday have a Davidic king that would rule them. You and I couldn't. You check all through your Old Testament. You're not going to find the word uh, America. You're not going to find Germany, France, Russia. They're not there. We had no promises from God to hold to. In verse 12, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. You were in Satan's playground and you had no way to delineate the truth. That's where you were. In verse 13, what's the first two words? But now there's been a change. In Christ, you who formerly were far off. Incidentally, do you know that in the Jewish temple they had a big wall and it was called the court of the Gentiles? If a Gentile crossed that wall, Israel had the right of capital punishment. They could kill him and there was nothing the Romans could do. And so we were far off and we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and I have been brought spiritually into the presence of God, which someday we will enjoy it corporeally when we look upon him. And we can now say, our Father, who art in heaven. And I can speak of my brothers and my sisters in Christ. By the blood of Christ, we that were far off have been brought near. He himself is our peace, meaning Jew and Gentile. He has not only reconciled us to God, but he's reconciled us to each other. You dig? We're now on the level ground of the cross. We're at peace with each other. Having made both groups into one and removed the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity between Jew and Gentile, 
which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man. Question, what is the one new man? The body of Christ. Thus establishing peace and reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enemy, the enmity. He came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. The Jew and the Gentile, we all come to God. Isn't that amazing? Remember John Lennon's imagine? That's the best he could do. Just dream about it. And so we have oneness. You remember a story where Paul went to Damascus to persecute the Christians. God struck him off his donkey, blinded him, and converted him. And then God said to Ananias in the city of Damascus, there's a guy in the house of a guy named Judas on a street called Straight, and I want you to find him. His name is Saul. I want you to baptize him and welcome him into the church. Remember what Ananias said? Excuse me. Are we talking about Saul of Tarsus, the guy that's up here to whoop on us? Yes, precisely. What he is, is a chosen vessel that will bear my name before the kings and the Jews. That's who he is. And Ananias went in and found him and said, Brother Saul, that's, you're now my brother. You're now my brother. And he baptized him. I'm sure Paul wondered when he put him under. <laughs> you know, he may have stopped and prayed for him. And we just asked brought it back up. We are now brothers. When, when, you know, in my pagan days, when I was at North Texas, uh, my only friends were football players. I didn't even hang out with basketball. They ran around in their underwear, you know. <laughs> Anybody watch Gonzaga last night? You know, it's going to be interesting in the final four, or in the, in the final, you're going to have Gonzaga versus Baylor. You know what Gonzaga is? It's a Jesuit Catholic institution up in the Northwest. We're going to put the Catholics against the Baptist. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be the 30 years war, you know, all over. But anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. My pagan days, they're all jocks, all football players. Longest word they knew was like delicatessen. All right. These were not the most intelligent people in the world. And we just hung around each other. Uh, matter of fact, we'd go down to the uh, TV lounge. And uh, we always wanted to watch Have Gun, Will Travel. Anybody? Yeah. And that was, they, it came on at a certain time. And so a lot of the music majors would be down there. And my roommate would go, lizards, go. And he would throw Kendall out, <laughs> you know. All the lizards would leave. So we'd watch. I got saved and I went to a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting. Anybody else grew up in Campus Crusade? And I went to that Campus Crusade meeting, and there were dormy guys. There were non-athletes. There were, I was the only athlete in the bunch. There were guys and girls that I had no earthly idea where they came from or who they were. And they, I, be, I had a bond with them that I had with no athlete. I just noticed it, that there was a bond, because our love went deep. It went to the cross. And so that's what Paul is saying right here. We no longer recognize men according to the, to the uh, flesh. Christ is all. You change in your view of each other. Incidentally, uh, are we having a little problem in our country right now on this issue? 
called racism. This is the way you fix man's inhumanity to man. When men are new creations in Christ, they get close. You can't fix a moral problem, bigotry, prejudice. You can't fix a moral problem through an amoral means. And that is what the social justice movement is. It's not a biblical movement. Christ has no place in it. It's called cultural Marxism. Now, if you don't know what cultural Marxism is or the social binary, oppressor, oppressed, if you don't know what um, intersectionality is, you need to be at our conference we're going to do in June on wokeness. This is the greatest error that has come across the United States since the 1960s. And we have bought into it, hook, line, sinker, worm, everything. We have bought into it because we're looking for help. In, in Russia, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they had a problem seeing, as Karl Marx saw, the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth in the Industrial Revolution, white slavery, of people being put into the uh, uh, factories and just obliterated. And a certain degree of guys making money. And he saw, if you ever read Das Kapital, as you're reading it, you're doing this. Go, Carl, go. Because he's seeing the problem. And then his solution is, the workers need to rise up and kill everybody. Fantastic. If you've ever looked at the French Revolution, you see problems in the non-compassionate use of accumulated wealth and the crushing down of the common man. The solution, kill all the aristocrats and kill all the, the priests and kill all the Catholics. All the, and uh, Chairman Mao. Communism is going to be the new deal that comes out of Darwinism. If anybody's over the age of 30, we kill them. You know how many Mao killed? It's coming now to about 40 million that he killed simply because they were too old to embrace the new idea of atheism. And so Satan knows what he's doing. I'll take a valid need and I will answer it in a satanic way. And that's what we've got today. And it's going to produce the greatest division, racism, and hate this country has seen forever. It's going to produce it. And so we're going to get in the breach because that's where you've got to stand as a Christian. You can't just stand on the wall. You've got to get in the breach where they're coming through and you've got to speak. And so we're going to speak. If you don't know about that, you need to be here so you can help when your grandkids bring it home that you can know how to deal with it. And when you get into business and the business award this idea, you better know what you're doing because it's coming. You dig? It's coming. You better know what it is. It's good that I could preach on this stuff at the age of 70 because you just don't care no more. <laughs> you know, you really don't. I got a buddy, y'all know a guy named Chuck Swindoll? Chuck said to me once, he said, you know, when you get 70, Tommy, it's going to be great. And I said, how come? He said, because when you're 70, you just don't give a damn. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. Sometimes I think, oh, what's going to happen? I'm going to be dead. It don't matter. <laughs> High school, don't repeat what you hear in church. <laughs> and don't email it. All right. Dig it. Have y'all watched that deal that's come out called The Chosen? It's really interesting, really interesting. I've watched, people kept saying to me, watch this, watch this. So I watched it. And I was amazed at the fastidious, 
publicity, they stick by the text. They stick right by the text. And yet, the Jesus they depict, and a lot of the Jesus movies, he's always walking without his feet touching the ground, you know. He's just kind of, he's not really one of us. He just kind of looks like us. Well, this one, Jesus is holy, but he's lighthearted. He loves people. He laughs at kids and laughs with his mama. He's just a great guy. You just like him. And there's one particular deal. And I laughed out loud and I yelled at Teresa, come and watch this. Whenever he calls Matthew the tax collector, the IRS agent that nobody likes. And he calls Matthew to follow him. And through the movie, Matthew's been watching him, wishing he could get close, but knowing he's a pariah. And everybody, wherever Matthew goes, people throw stuff, they hit him with a tomato in the head, you know. Nobody likes him. He's sold out for, the, for money. And Jesus keeps watching him. And Jesus walks by the tax office, and Matthew is taking in his money, and he's just looking at him. And Jesus stops and turns, and his eyes find him. Matthew, follow me. And he looks at him, he says, this, this Matthew you're talking to? What? Follow me. And the Roman soldier that's taking care of Matthew, which every tax collector had to have, was armed guard. He says, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And Matthew gives him the key to his mansion. And he gives him his signet ring. Take it. And he walks off. And as he does, Peter comes up to Jesus. And the, the, the movie is made by an American. And it has a little American twist to it. And Jesus is there and up comes Peter. And he goes, just this, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like somebody would say in Dallas, you know. Whoa, whoa. You're asking Matthew to come with us? And Jesus doesn't ever look at Peter. He just keeps looking at Matthew and smiling. He says, you didn't have a problem with Mary Magdalene. She's a good-looking brunette, you know. You had no problem with her. And Peter goes, oh, this is different. And Jesus says, get used to different That was perfect. Get used to different. You're about to see some difference like you ain't never seen. Well, that's what this is about. So go back to 2 Corinthians 5. And that's what he means. That we see God different and we see people different. It is perpetual Easter has happened. And now in verse 17, here's why. He said, let me give you some theological proof. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What's creation? Where God makes something out of nothing. What's our salvation? Something out of nothing. Paul said, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. Paul said, our salvation is like the, new, like the creation. Let there be light, and we're alive. And so he says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things passed away, new things have come. Now, let me tell you what Paul did. If you've got a Bible with cross-references, you'll look at it, and you see in your column, in your index, you see Isaiah 65. Do you see it? Connie Cone? Or Connie, you see you don't see it? Get a new Bible, Connie. Buddy, get a new Bible. Dawn, in your cross-reference, do you see Isaiah 65 and verse 17? 
the letters are too small. I'm oh, sorry. Could we get Dawn some glasses? This is a quote from Isaiah where God's talking about the eschatological end of history. And God says, I make new heavens and a new earth. That verse is quoted by Paul here, that the eschatological end, when God will make new heavens and a new earth, it's already begun in the time of grace, that God is making all things new. I want to show you something. Look where else it is used. If you'll look over at Revelation 21, go to the very end, and that Isaiah verse is quoted. Revelation 21, after the final judgment, the great throne, white throne judgment in chapter 20, in verse 1, and then I saw a, what's it say? New heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth have passed away. Peter said, the elements will melt with intense heat and the earth and all of its works will be burned up. Do you mean, Tommy, that God is not merely going to raise Jesus from the dead? He's not merely going to raise the elect and give them new life. He's not merely going to return and give history a regeneration. Have you all ever read Revelation about the lion laying down with the lamb? There's going to be a, re a regeneration to history. Matter of fact, that's what Christ called it. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you guys will be on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. There's going to be a regeneration of history. This says there's going to be a regeneration of the cosmos. The stage on which this rebellion occurred, I'm going to remove the stage. And I'm going to make new heavens and a new earth. What's it going to look like? Nobody knows. It only exists one place. It's in the mind of God. I'm going to remove this, and then the heavenly city is going to come down as the center of a new universe. Revelation 21, 22. Now, that's the eschatological end. Y'all know what eschatology is? Prophecy means the future. Eschatology is not just the future. It's the end. The eschaton is the end. And so the Bible, dig it now, the Bible is a book that takes a guy, John, and lets him do an out-of-body time travel. Did y'all know that? John is out-of-body, and he is going through time. Revelation isn't, in a sense, a prophecy it's a recording of what he saw. He went into the end of time and came back to the Isle of Patmos, wrote it down so we could see it. Because we need to know how this is going to end. Isn't that right? Did anybody here when you were little go see the movie Psycho? Now you're wondering where I'm going with this. Okay. The movie Psycho was the first time you dealt with a, uh, a divided personality. Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins. And whenever they showed the movie, they made you number one. If you remember, whenever you went in, you had to sign a deal that if you died during the movie, you wouldn't sue the theater. <laughs> All right. And then they showed the movie, and you could hear outside the movie. You would hear. You remember the last scene where she goes in, spins grandma around, and it, I'll let it go. And you could hear the crowd. And then in comes Anthony. Ha, ha, ha! So you could hear it outside. You didn't know what was there. And they dismissed the crowd from the back of the theater. They didn't let you out the front. 
Because just as sure as you did, you'd come out the front and go, he's his own mother. <laughs> Has anyone not seen Psycho? <laughs> Send me the money for the rental. It's kind of like Rosebud is his slid, and have you ever seen Citizen Care? But they made you go out the back, and the guy would get up at the movie and make an appeal. He would say, I would ask you, please, don't tell anybody about this movie because nobody will come because the suspense of the movie is solved in the last five minutes. You've got to wait till the end. God doesn't let human history be psycho. You don't have to wonder how this is going to work. You get to look ahead and see the end before it happens. You dig? So we don't have to worry. Our world is crazy. And I'll tell you why. Because the craziness of the 60s, all right, the crazy people were me, college guys. But we had the greatest generation over us, World War II guys, that kept us in line. Schmidt, did you ever have Bill Carrico beat you? Yes, you did. Did Coach Collins ever beat you? Did, did Charlie Cole ever beat you? You were the worst kid in Denton, as I remember. Yeah. They were all World War II Korea veterans that beat you. And so the crazy guys on the college campuses, buddy, me and you couldn't get too crazy because the old guys went, shut up. <laughs> get back. Say the pledge. I'll beat you to death. Well, guess what happened today? All the old guys died. The idiots grew up. And now there's no lid over us. We're being run by the idiots. That's <laughs> the guys that run the businesses, the guys that run the pro athletics, the guys that do this, the guys in the White House, guys in Congress, I'll assure you, they all inhaled. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I hear them talk, I hear I see about a quarter inch of bong resin. <laughs> Whenever Biden speaks, I want to say, Joe, don't talk. Just turn the prompter around and let us read the thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a fact. And so we got no lid now. And so you and I are an island in a secluded place with a crazy world out there. So, what was I talking about? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, yeah. What was I talking about? Psycho. Revelation. revelation. Yeah, revelations. And so in, Reve yeah, 21. And revelation, hang on here. In Revelation 21, do you see verse 5? He applies revelation to the Christian experience. He who sits on the throne said, Behold. Now, Isaiah 65 says, Behold, I make new heavens and a new earth. God takes that verse in verse 5 and says, Behold. He's going to apply it. I not will make all things new. He's already said that. What's the verb tense? Y'all remember what a verb is? 
What's your verb tense in verse five? It's called present imperfect. It's still going on. He says, I am making all things new. In other words, the new process has already begun. Jesus got raised, and in between the new heavens and new earth, we're having every man in Christ as a new creation. We're having life. I'll give you a good example of this. Passover was when God took Israel out of slavery. That morphed into uh, the cross and uh, the upper room discourse. Passover is now Easter, when Christ rose from the dead. They occur in a solar timing. It's not a certain date that is Passover. It's a full moon, the Paschal moon. And it is a, uh, a certain month. It's the month of Abib, A-B-I-B, which is March and April. The Jewish year starts with springtime, when they came out of Egypt. And the word Abib means ears. And it's used of whenever the barley and the wheat start coming up. Did y'all remember that before the great Arctic freeze hit us? When the season comes of March and April, you see little green ears coming up. And that's why they call March and April Abib, ears. Give you a good example of this. Uh, anybody ever watch The Little Rascals? <laughs> okay. And Little Rascals, there was a guy that had a cow lick that stuck up on the back of his head, just like something coming up from the earth. And his name was Alfalfa, because it was wing. And that's why we speak about March and April as the beginning of spring. Life comes. That's when Christ rose. That's when God took Israel out. Spring. That life is beginning from the time Christ rose. Look around. Have we all got testimonies of being born again? Boing. Life has sprung. Well, I am making all things new. Here we go. So we're part of it. So go back here to 2 Corinthians 5. And he says in verse 18, all things, verse 17, new things come. All things are from God. How did this come about? The sovereign grace of God. Amen? We did not affect our salvation. All these new things, my forgiveness, the atonement, his propitiation of God's wrath, his redemption of my sin, his reconciliation of me to myself, the imputation of divine righteousness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, on and on. These came from God. It's a divine act. That's the way you fix man. It's not by Rousseauian enlightenment. It's not by Marxian communism. It's by the grace of God that he's fixed. And so these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. He did something to us that we are conciliated back to God. We're at peace with him. And in verse 18, he has now done something. He gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning I'm going to let you be the one to announce this message. 
That's your job from this point on. If I'd have been God, I would have saved us and said, sit in the corner and don't tell anybody who you are. But God said, I'm going to be glorified in the preacher as much as in the converts. I'm going to let you preach. They said about the apostle Paul, he that once persecuted us is preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. And so in verse 19, here's the message. First, it's about the deity of Christ. God was in Christ. He is God. And then his death, reconciling the world to himself. And then deliverance, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word. And so that's that word there, incidentally, in verse 19. He has committed to us. It's the Greek word to place in. I'm going to take this truth and I'm going to make you a safety deposit box. And I'm going to pull you out and I'm going to put this in you. And I'm not going to convert men by angels. Even Jesus will not personally appeal, appear to convert you. He will make uh, Peter go to uh, Cornelius. He will make Ananias go to Saul. I'm going to let you do it. And so this is a new view of God, new view of each other, new view of me, and a new view of life. That's why we're here. And he says in verse uh, 20, you now have a new identity. Therefore, we are, what's it say? Ambassadors. An ambassador is a person in a foreign world that he isn't a part of that world. He talks different. He dresses different. He acts different because he's under a foreign king. Are you with me? That's what a Christian is. So has our world gone crazy? Sure. They've always been crazy. Does that affect me? Not in the least I've got my king and I've got my rules. I've got my people. I've got my salvation. I will merely go out and make sorties under the crazies and share my gospel with them. But I'm not going to become like them. They're the problem. We're the solution. And so that's how we regard the world. And so if you're out there crazy and you would like to get normal for just a second and have an infinite personal God and you underneath him and men to be loved and morality and truth in the home and the work ethic and how you raise a kid, if you would like to be normal, come on. Because we deal in what is normal, on what man is meant to be. And so we are ambassadors and look at this, God making an appeal through us beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. And incidentally, that phrase, reconciliation, he's talking to the Corinthians. This is not an evangelism verse, essentially. He's talking to the Corinthians who were getting drunk at communion. Always a problem. A guy's living in immorality with his... Uh, father's second wife. What do you call that? that a stepmother? Yeah, that's a stepmother, right? Living in immorality. They were regarding, uh, you know, as the stomach has food, so the body has sex. You got sex organs, use them. And that's what was going on in the, in the Corinthian church. Just crazy stuff. And God couldn't use them. So when he says, be reconciled to God, he's talking to Christians. If if the church was a child, the Corinthians would be 16. 
They're like goofy teenagers. And Paul says, have y'all ever done that whenever you've counseled some Christian that's living in sin? And you said, you know, you know the gospel, but God can't use you because you're alien to him. And that's what Paul means. Be reconciled to God. We mean get your life in gear. You're racing the motor, but it's not engaged. You ain't going nowhere because of sin. What's your motive for being reconciled? Verse 21, the grace of God. What was it that controlled Paul? The love of Christ. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin. He was perfect. To be sin, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. If that can't grip you, you can't be gripped. It's the mercy of God. Paul doesn't threaten him. He just says, boys, contemplate this. There's a dead man alive in heaven that was the source of life, and he did it for you. Now, you walk away from that. See if you can. One of the ladies in the church, have y'all watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Whew. One of the ladies in the church let her grandson, or her child, the grandson of another one of our ladies, watch it. And she said that little boy had heard of Christ, but he'd never seen anything like that. And she said, I had to turn it off. He wept, and he wept with every whip of that lash. He wept. She had to stop it. And that's what Paul wants you to do. You take a long look at what he did. And we conclude... Then working together, that's the Christian life. Verse verse 20, God through us, behalf of Christ. Verse one, working with God. We are now like Jonathan in his day. He has worked with God this day. God has left you a purpose, Christian, and that is to work with God. In verse 1, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't let your conversion be reduced to nothing because of your disqualification of yourself, your distraction from the ministry because of wealth, because of your defilement of yourself, the deception you've gotten into, your divisiveness that nobody can believe you. Don't let that happen. Are you worth it, Patrick Ryan? Wasn't that his name? Are you worth it? In verse 1, because he says in verse 2, and he quotes here from Isaiah. When you get some time, go home and look. In Isaiah 49, the Messiah is rejected by the nation. And the Messiah prays and says, he says, uh, I have spent my strength for nothing. And the Father speaks to him and says, it's not enough for you to be a light to Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. Is there sometimes God can use evil to bring about a greater good? Joseph, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And so God speaks to him. You're rejected. You're calling out as Gethsemane. But I'm telling you, I'm going to use this. He may get crucified by his people, but I'm going to save a whole mess of people through this. You're going to be a covenant to the Gentiles. And now he says in verse 2 to Messiah in Isaiah 49, 
at the acceptable time. I listened to you, and then I helped you on a day of salvation. I will raise you from the dead and take you through this. And when it is over, those terms, acceptable time and day of salvation, are talking to a Jew about the year of Jubilee. Y'all know what that is? It's where all the, every 50 years, all debts are taken away, and all the land goes back to the original owners, as given under Joshua. And that is seen by Isaiah 49. It looks at Messiah, that he's going to die for all men, and it's going to begin a year of Jubilee where everything will come back underneath God. Isn't that something? We pull down speculations and lofty things raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So God says, I'm going to fix this through this awful deed. When does the year of Jubilee start? Well, obviously, in the second coming of Christ and the kingdom. No. At the end of verse 2, you see a word that's mentioned twice. What's the word? Behold. What's the next word? Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What's that mean? The day of salvation and restoration has already begun. It's called Easter. And that is why God has left you here. Isn't that good? That's what Easter is meant to do. It's 1230. We got nothing to go home for. Listen to this. When I was in seminary, I heard a guy get up. He spoke to the seminary in 1977. I've never told this. He was a Scotchman. He did mission work in Scotland. And he got up and he spoke to us, all of us there in Lamb Auditorium, buddy. He spoke to us. And he gets up and he says, as you might know, that in Scotland, our leading sport is that of golf. As a matter of fact, we invented it. There at St. Andrews. And there's a tale about a Scotchman that went forth to tee off. And he was what we call a duffer. He wasn't real good. And he set up the ball on the tee, and he didn't realize that he had set it up upon a fledgling newborn anthill. He put it on the anthill. And he got ready. He set his tamashanter in place. And he drew back, and he missed it. And he tore up a big clump of sod with ants flying all about. Thousands killed, hundreds left homeless. <laughs> I remember him saying that. And so he said, I'll try it again. And so he backed up again. And he swung a mighty swing. And again, he missed the ball completely. This time bringing a damage to the infrastructure and leaving many houses without male leadership. And on the next time, an ant climbed upon the tee. And the ant shouted to all of his friends, if you're going to survive this day, you better get on the ball. <laughs> I've been waiting since 77 to tell that joke. <laughs> now it's begun. Father in heaven, we bless you for this day. And if there's anybody that has made their yearly pilgrimage here for Easter, I pray, God, that they might understand that the life of man is apart from him and God. 
The solutions will come by the invasion of our world by Christ. Our solutions will be in God and what he did on the cross where all we could do is lift up and look at him. And our solutions will come by the rebirth. And that's going to fix us and you and us and each other. And us and history. And it's going to give us our existential purpose that we are here for. We will never wonder why ever again. Find us worthy. I think of that dear soldier we buried a couple of weeks ago, Charlie Lindsay. So the lady said to him in his life as he saw him pass, thank you for your service. And he merely looked at her and said, you were worth it. God, are we worth it? Amen.